Day 8 of Totus Tuus' Novena, with quotes from Pope John Paul II's encyclical, Fides et Ratio. In sacred scripture are found elements, both implicit and explicit, which allow a vision of the human being and the world, which has exceptional philosophical density. Christians have come to an ever-deeper awareness of the wealth to be found in the sacred text. It is there that we learn that what we experience is not absolute. It is neither uncreated nor self-generating. God alone is the absolute. From the Bible there emerges also a vision of man as imago dei. This vision offers indications regarding man's life, his freedom and the immortality of the human spirit. Since the creative world is not self-sufficient, every illusion of autonomy which would deny the essential dependence on God of every creature, the human being included, leads to dramatic situations which subvert the rational search for the harmony and the meaning of human life. The problem of moral evil, the most tragic of evil's forms, is also addressed in the Bible, which tells us that such evil stems not from any material deficiency, but is a wound inflicted by the disordered exercise of human freedom. In the end, the Word of God poses the problem of the meaning of life and proffers its response in directing the human being to Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word of God, who is the perfect realization of human existence. A reading of the sacred text would reveal other aspects of this problem, but what emerges clearly is the rejection of all forms of relativism, materialism and pantheism. The fundamental conviction of the philosophy found in the Bible is that the world and human life do have a meaning and look towards their fulfillment, which comes in Jesus Christ. The mystery of the Incarnation will always remain the central point of reference for an understanding of the enigma of human existence, the created world and God himself. The challenge of this mystery pushes philosophy to its limits as reason is summoned to make its own a logic which brings down the walls within which it risks being confined. Yet only at this point does the meaning of life reach its defining moment. The intimate essence of God and of the human being become intelligible. In the mystery of the incarnate word, human nature and divine nature are safeguarded in all their autonomy, and at the same time the unique bond which sets them together in mutuality without confusion of any kind, is revealed. One of the most significant aspects of our current situation, it should be noted, is the crisis of meaning. Perspectives on life and the world, often of a scientific temper, have so proliferated that we face an increasing fragmentation of knowledge. This makes the search for meaning difficult and often fruitless. Indeed, still more dramatically in this maelstrom of data and facts in which we live and which seem to comprise the very fabric of life. Many people wonder whether it still makes sense to ask about meaning. The array of theories which vie to give an answer and the different ways of viewing and of interpreting the world and human life serve only to aggravate this radical doubt which can easily lead to skepticism, indifference or to various forms of nihilism. In consequence, the human spirit is often invaded by a kind of ambiguous thinking which leads it to an ever-deepening introversion, locked within the confines of its own imminence 
without reference of any kind to the transcendent. A philosophy which no longer asks the question of the meaning of life would be in grave danger of reducing reason to merely accessory functions with no real passion for the search for truth. To be consonant with the word of God, philosophy needs, first of all, to recover its sapiential dimension as a search for the ultimate and overarching meaning of life. This first requirement is in fact most helpful in stimulating philosophy to conform to its proper nature. In doing so, it will be not only the decisive critical factor which determines the foundations and limits of different fields of scientific learning, but will also take its place as the ultimate framework of the unity of human knowledge and action, leading them to converge towards a final goal and meaning. This sapiential dimension is all the more necessary today because the immense expansion of humanity's technical capability demands a renewed and sharpened sense of ultimate values. If this technology is not ordered to something greater than a merely utilitarian end, then it could soon prove inhuman and even become a potential destroyer of the human race. The Word of God reveals the final destiny of men and women and provides a unifying explanation of all that they do in the world. This is why it invites philosophy to engage in the search for the natural foundation of this meaning, which corresponds to the religious impulse innate in every person. A philosophy denying the possibility of an ultimate and overarching meaning would be not only ill-adapted to its task, but false. Yet this sapiential function could not be performed by a philosophy which was not itself a true and authentic knowledge, addressed, that is, not only to particular and subordinate aspects of reality, functional, formal or utilitarian, but to its total and definitive truth, to the very being of the object which is known. This prompts a second requirement, that philosophy verify the human capacity to know the truth, to come to a knowledge which can reach objective truth by means of that adequatio rei et intellectus to which the scholastic doctors referred. This requirement, proper to faith, was explicitly reaffirmed by the Second Vatican Council. Intelligence is not confined to observable data alone. It can, with genuine certitude, attain to reality itself as knowable, though in consequence of sin that certitude is partially obscured and weakened. A radically phenomenalist or relativist philosophy would be ill-adapted to help in the deeper exploration of the riches found in the Word of God. Sacred Scripture always assumes that the individual, even if guilty of duplicity and mendacity, can know and grasp the clear and simple truth. The Bible, and the New Testament in particular, contains texts and statements which have a genuinely ontological content. The inspired authors intended to formulate true statements capable, that is, of expressing objective reality. It cannot be said that the Catholic tradition erred when it took certain texts of St. John and St. Paul to be statements about the very being of Christ. In seeking to understand and explain these statements, theology needs, therefore, the contribution of a philosophy which does not disavow the possibility of a knowledge which is objectively true, even if not perfect. This applies equally to the judgments of moral conscience, which sacred scripture considers capable of being objectively true.
The two requirements already stipulated imply a third. The need for a philosophy of genuinely metaphysical range, capable, that is, of transcending empirical data, in order to attain something absolute, ultimate, and foundational in its search for truth. This requirement is implicit in sapiential and analytical knowledge alike, and in particular it is a requirement for knowing the moral good, which has its ultimate foundation in the supreme good, God himself. Here, I do not mean to speak of metaphysics in the sense of a specific school or a particular historical current of thought. I want only to state that reality and truth do transcend the factual and the empirical, and to vindicate the human being's capacity to know this transcendent and metaphysical dimension in a way that is true and certain, albeit imperfect and analogical. In this sense, metaphysics should not be seen as an alternative to anthropology, since it is metaphysics which makes it possible to ground the concept of personal dignity in virtue of their spiritual nature. In a special way, the person constitutes a privileged locus for the encounter with being, and hence with metaphysical inquiry. Wherever men and women discover a call to the absolute and transcendent, the metaphysical dimension of reality opens up before them. In truth, in beauty, in moral values, in other persons, in being itself, in God. We face a great challenge at the end of this millennium to move from phenomenon to foundation, a step as necessary as it is urgent. We cannot stop short at experience alone, even if experience does reveal the human being's interiority and spirituality, speculative thinking must penetrate to the spiritual core and the ground from which it rises. Therefore, a philosophy which shuns metaphysics would be radically unsuited to the task of mediation in the understanding of revelation. The Word of God refers constantly to things which transcend human experience and even human thought. But this mystery could not be revealed, nor could theology render it in some way intelligible, were human knowledge limited strictly to the world of sense experience. Metaphysics thus plays an essential role of mediation in theological research. A theology without a metaphysical horizon could not move beyond an analysis of religious experience, nor would it allow the intellectus fidei to give a coherent account of the universal and transcendent value of revealed truth. If I insist so strongly on the metaphysical element, it is because I am convinced that it is the path to be taken in order to move beyond the crisis pervading large sectors of philosophy at the moment, and thus to correct certain mistaken modes of behavior now widespread in our society. The importance of metaphysics becomes still more evident if we consider current developments of hermeneutics and the analysis of language. The results of such studies can be very helpful for the understanding of faith, since they bring to light the structure of our thought and speech and the meaning which language bears. However, some scholars working in these fields tend to stop short at the question of how reality is understood and expressed, without going further to see whether reason can discover its essence. How can we fail to see in such a frame of mind the confirmation of our present crisis of confidence in the powers of reason, when, 
On the basis of preconceived assumptions, these positions tend to obscure the contents of faith or to deny their universal validity. Then not only do they abase reason, but in doing so, they also disqualify themselves. Faith clearly presupposes that human language is capable of expressing divine and transcendent reality in a universal way. Analogically, it is true, but no less meaningfully for that. Were this not so, the word of God, which is always a divine word in human language, would not be capable of saying anything about God. The interpretation of this word cannot merely keep referring us to one interpretation after another, without ever leading us to a statement which is simply true. Otherwise there would be no revelation of God, but only the expression of human notions about God, and about what God presumably thinks of us. I am well aware that these requirements which the Word of God imposes upon philosophy may seem daunting to many people involved in philosophical research today. Yet this is why, taking up what has been taught repeatedly by the popes for several generations and reaffirmed by the Second Vatican Council itself, I wish to reaffirm strongly the conviction that the human being can come to a unified and organic vision of knowledge. This is one of the tasks which Christian thought will have to take up through the next millennium of the Christian era. The segmentation of knowledge, with its splintered approach to truth and consequent fragmentation of meaning, keeps people today from coming to an interior unity. How could the Church not be concerned by this? It is the Gospel which imposes this sapiential task directly upon her pastors, and they cannot shrink from their duty to undertake it. I believe that those philosophers who wish to respond today to the demands which the Word of God makes on human thinking should develop their thought on the basis of these postulates and in organic continuity with the great tradition, which, beginning with the ancients, passes through the fathers of the Church and the masters of scholasticism and includes the fundamental achievements of modern and contemporary thought. If philosophers can take their place within this tradition and draw their inspiration from it, they will certainly not fail to respect philosophy's demand for autonomy. In the present situation, therefore, it is most significant that some philosophers are promoting a recovery of the determining role of this tradition for a right approach to knowledge. The appeal to tradition is not a mere remembrance of the past. It involves, rather, the recognition of a cultural heritage which belongs to all humanity. Indeed, it may be said, that it is we who belong to the tradition, and that it is not ours to dispose of at will. Precisely by being rooted in the tradition, will we be able today to develop for the future an original, new and constructive mode of thinking. This same appeal is all the more valid for theology, not only because theology has the living tradition of the Church as its original source, but also because, in virtue of this, it must be able to recover both the profound theological tradition of earlier times and the enduring tradition of that philosophy which by dint of its authentic wisdom can transcend the boundaries of space and time. This insistence on the need for a close relationship of continuity between contemporary philosophy and the philosophy developed in the Christian tradition is intended to avert the danger which lies hidden in some currents of thought which are especially prevalent today. 
it is appropriate, I think, to review them, however briefly, in order to point out their errors and the consequent risks for philosophical work. The first goes by the name of eclecticism, by which is meant the approach of those who, in research, teaching and argumentation, even in theology, tend to use individual ideas drawn from different philosophies, without concern for their internal coherence, their place within a system or their historical context. They therefore run the risk of being unable to distinguish the part of truth of a given doctrine from elements of it which may be erroneous or ill-suited to the task at hand. An extreme form of eclecticism appears also in the rhetorical misuse of philosophical terms to which some theologians are given at times. Such manipulation does not help the search for truth and does not train reason, whether theological or philosophical, to formulate arguments seriously and scientifically. The rigorous and far-reaching study of philosophical doctrines, their particular terminology, and the context in which they arose, helps to overcome the danger of eclecticism and makes it possible to integrate them into theological discourse in a way appropriate to the task. Eclecticism is an error of method, but lying hidden within it can also be the claims of historicism. To understand a doctrine from the past correctly, it is necessary to set it within its proper historical and cultural context. The fundamental claim of historicism, however, is that the truth of a philosophy is determined on the basis of its appropriateness to a certain period and a certain historical purpose. At least implicitly, therefore, the enduring validity of truth is denied. What was true in one period, historicists claim, may not be true in another. Thus for them, the history of thought becomes little more than an archaeological resource, useful for illustrating positions once held, but for the most part outmoded and meaningless now. On the contrary, it should not be forgotten that even if a formulation is bound in some way by time and culture, the truth or the error which it expresses can invariably be identified and evaluated as such, despite the distance of space and time. In theological inquiry, historicism tends to appear, for the most part, under the guise of modernism, rightly concerned to make theological discourse relevant and understandable to our time. Some theologians use only the most recent opinions and philosophical language, ignoring the critical evaluation which ought to be made of them in the light of tradition. By exchanging relevance for truth, this form of modernism shows itself incapable of satisfying the demands of truth to which theology is called to respond. Another threat to be reckoned with is scientism. This is the philosophical notion which refuses to admit the validity of forms of knowledge other than those of the positive sciences, and it relegates religious, theological, ethical and aesthetic knowledge to the realm of mere fantasy. In the past, the same idea emerged in positivism and neo-positivism, which considered metaphysical statements to be meaningless. Critical epistemology has discredited such a claim, but now we see it revived in the new guise of scientism, which dismisses values as mere products of the emotions and rejects the notion of being in order to clear the way for pure and simple facticity. Science would thus be poised to dominate all aspects of human life through technological progress. The undeniable triumph of scientific research 
and contemporary technology have helped to propagate a scientific outlook, which now seems boundless given its inroads into different cultures and the radical changes it has brought. Regrettably, it must be noted, scientism consigns all that has to do with the question of the meaning of life to the realm of the irrational or imaginary. No less disappointing is the way in which it approaches the other great problems of philosophy, which, if they are not ignored, are subjected to analysis based on superficial analogies, lacking or rational foundation. This leads to the impoverishment of human thought, which no longer addresses the ultimate problems which the human being, as the animal rationale, has pondered constantly from the beginning of time. And since it leaves no space for the critique offered by ethical judgment, the scientific mentality has succeeded in leading many to think that if something is technically possible, it is therefore morally admissible. No less dangerous is pragmatism, an attitude of mind which, in making choices, precludes theoretical considerations or judgments based on ethical principles. The practical consequences of this mode of thinking are significant. In particular, there is growing support for a concept of democracy which is not grounded upon any reference to unchanging values. Whether or not a line of action is admissible is decided by the vote of a parliamentary majority. The consequences of this are clear. In practice, the great moral decisions of humanity are subordinated to decisions taken one after another by institutional agencies. Moreover, anthropology itself is severely compromised by a one-dimensional vision of the human being, a vision which excludes the great ethical dilemmas and the existential analysis of the meaning of suffering and sacrifice, of life and death. The positions we have examined lead in turn to a more general conception which appears today as the common framework of many philosophies which have rejected the meaningfulness of being. I am referring to the nihilist interpretation, which is at once the denial of all foundations and the negation of all objective truth. Quite apart from the fact that it conflicts with the demands and the content of the Word of God, nihilism is a denial of the humanity and of the very identity of the human being. It should never be forgotten that the neglect of being inevitably leads to losing touch with objective truth and therefore with the very ground of human dignity. This, in turn, makes it possible to erase from the countenance of man and woman the marks of their likeness to God, and thus to lead them, little by little, either to a destructive will to power, or to a solitude without hope. Once the truth is denied to human beings, it is pure illusion to try to set them free. Truth and freedom either go together hand in hand, or together they perish in misery. In discussing these currents of thought, it has not been my intention to present a complete picture of the present state of philosophy, which would, in any case, be difficult to reduce to a unified vision. And I certainly wish to stress that our heritage of knowledge and wisdom has indeed been enriched in different fields. We need only cite logic, the philosophy of language, epistemology, the philosophy of nature, anthropology, the more penetrating analysis of the effective dimensions of knowledge, and the existential approach to the analysis of freedom. Since the last century, however, the affirmation of the principle of immanence 
central to the rationalist argument, has provoked a radical re-questioning of claims once thought indisputable. In response, currents of irrationalism arose, even as the baselessness of the demand that reason be absolutely self-grounded was being critically demonstrated. Our age has been termed by some thinkers the age of post-modernity. Often used in very different contexts, the term designates the emergence of a complex of new factors, which, widespread and powerful as they are, have shown themselves able to produce important and lasting changes. The term was first used with reference to aesthetic, social and technological phenomena. It was then transposed into the philosophical field, but has remained somewhat ambiguous, both because judgment on what is called postmodern is sometimes positive and sometimes negative, and because there is, as yet, no consensus on the delicate question of the demarcation of the different historical periods. One thing, however, is certain. The currents of thought which claim to be postmodern merit appropriate attention. According to some of them, the time of certainties is irrevocably past, and the human being must now learn to live in a horizon of total absence of meaning, where everything is provisional and ephemeral. In their destructive critique of every certitude, several authors have failed to make crucial distinctions and have called into question the certitudes of faith. This nihilism has been justified in a sense by the terrible experience of evil which has marked our age. Such a dramatic experience has ensured the collapse of rationalist optimism, which viewed history as the triumphant progress of reason, the source of all happiness and freedom. And now, at the end of this century, one of our greatest threats is the temptation to despair. Even so, it remains true that a certain positivist cast of mind continues to nurture the illusion that, thanks to scientific and technical progress, man and woman may live as a demiurge, single-handedly and completely taking charge of their destiny. As an understanding of revelation, theology has always had to respond in different historical moments to the demands of different cultures, in order then to mediate the content of faith to those cultures in a coherent and conceptually clear way. Today, too, theology faces a dual task. On the one hand, it must be increasingly committed to the task entrusted to it by the Second Vatican Council, the task of renewing its specific methods in order to serve evangelization more effectively. How can we fail to recall in this regard the words of Pope John XXIII at the opening of the Council? He said then, in line with the keen expectation of those who sincerely love the Christian, Catholic and Apostolic religion, this doctrine must be known more widely and deeply, and souls must be instructed and formed in it more completely. And this certain and unchangeable doctrine, always to be faithfully respected, must be understood more profoundly and presented in a way which meets the needs of our time. On the other hand, theology must look to the ultimate truth which revelation entrusts to it, never content to stop short of that goal. Theologians should remember that their work corresponds to a dynamism found in the faith itself, and that the proper object of their inquiry is the truth which is the living God, and his plan for salvation revealed in Jesus Christ. This task, which is theology's prime concern, challenges philosophy as well. 
The array of problems which today need to be tackled demands a joint effort. Approached, it is true, with different methods, so that the truth may once again be known and expressed. The truth, which is Christ, imposes itself as an all-embracing authority which holds out to theology and philosophy alike the prospect of support, stimulation and increase. To believe it possible to know a universally valid truth is in no way to encourage intolerance. On the contrary, it is the essential condition for sincere and authentic dialogue between persons. On this basis alone is it possible to overcome divisions and to journey together towards full truth, walking those paths known only to the Spirit of the Risen Lord. I wish at this point to indicate the specific form which the call to unity now takes, given the current tasks of theology. The chief purpose of theology is to provide an understanding of revelation and the content of faith. The very heart of theological inquiry will thus be the contemplation of the mystery of the Triune God. The approach to this mystery begins with reflection upon the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God, his coming as man, his going to his passion and death, a mystery issuing into his glorious resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, whence he would send the Spirit of Truth to bring his church to birth and give her growth. From this vantage point, the prime commitment of theology is seen to be the understanding of God's kenosis, a grand and mysterious truth for the human mind, which finds it inconceivable that suffering and death can express a love which gives itself and seeks nothing in return. In this light, a careful analysis of texts emerges as a basic and urgent need, first the texts of scripture, and then those which express the Church's living tradition. On this score, some problems have emerged in recent times problems which are only partially new, and a coherent solution to them will not be found without philosophy's contribution. An initial problem is that of the relationship between meaning and truth. Like every other text, the sources which the theologian interprets primarily transmit a meaning which needs to be grasped and explained. This meaning presents itself as the truth about God, which God himself communicates through the sacred text Human language thus embodies the language of God, who communicates his own truth with that wonderful condescension which mirrors the logic of the Incarnation. In interpreting the sources of Revelation, then, the theologian needs to ask what is the deep and authentic truth which the texts wish to communicate, even within the limits of language. The truth of the biblical texts, and of the Gospels in particular, is certainly not restricted to the narration of simple historical events or the statement of neutral facts, as historicist positivism would claim. Beyond simple historical occurrence, the truth of the events which these texts relate lies rather in the meaning they have in and for the history of salvation. This truth is elaborated fully in the Church's constant reading of these texts over the centuries a reading which preserves intact their original meaning. There is a pressing need, therefore, that the relationship between fact and meaning, a relationship which constitutes the specific sense of history, be examined also from the philosophical point of view. 
the word of God is not addressed to any one people or to any one period of history. Similarly, dogmatic statements, while reflecting at times the culture of the period in which they were defined, formulate an unchanging and ultimate truth. This prompts the question of how one can reconcile the absoluteness and the universality of truth with the unavoidable historical and cultural conditioning of the formulas which express that truth. The claims of historicism, I noted earlier, are untenable, but the use of a hermeneutic open to the appeal of metaphysics can show how it is possible to move from the historical and contingent circumstances in which the texts developed to the truth which they express a truth transcending those circumstances. Human language may be conditioned by history and constricted in other ways, but the human being can still express truths which surpass the phenomenon of language. Truth can never be confined to time and culture. In history it is known, but it also reaches beyond history. To see this is to glimpse the solution of another problem the problem of the enduring validity of the conceptual language used in conciliar definitions. This is a question which my revered predecessor, Pius XII, addressed in his encyclical letter, Humani Generis. This is a complex theme to ponder, since one must reckon seriously with the meaning which words assume in different times and cultures. Nonetheless, the history of thought shows that across the range of cultures and their development, Certain basic concepts retain their universal epistemological value and thus retain the truth of the propositions in which they are expressed. Were this not the case, philosophy and the sciences could not communicate with each other, nor could they find a place in cultures different from those in which they were conceived and developed. The hermeneutical problem exists, to be sure, but it is not insoluble. Moreover, the objective value of many concepts does not exclude that their meaning is often imperfect. This is where philosophical speculation can be very helpful. We may hope, then, that philosophy will be especially concerned to deepen the understanding of the relationship between conceptual language and truth, and to propose ways which will lead to a right understanding of that relationship. The interpretation of sources is a vital task for theology. But another still more delicate and demanding task is the understanding of revealed truth, or the articulation of the intellectus fidei. The intellectus fidei, as I have noted, demands the contribution of a philosophy of being, which first of all would enable dogmatic theology to perform its functions appropriately. The dogmatic pragmatism of the early years of this century, which viewed the truths of faith as nothing more than rules of conduct, has already been refuted and rejected. But the temptation always remains of understanding these truths in purely functional terms. This leads only to an approach which is inadequate, reductive and superficial at the level of speculation. A Christology, for example, which proceeded solely from below, as is said nowadays, or an ecclesiology developed solely on the model of civil society, would be hard-pressed to avoid the danger of such reductionism. If the intellectus fidei wishes to integrate all the wealth of the theological tradition, it must turn to the philosophy of being, which should be able to propose anew the problem of being, and this in harmony with the demands and insights of the entire philosophical tradition, including philosophy of more recent times. 
without lapsing into sterile repetition of antiquated formulas. Set within the Christian metaphysical tradition, the philosophy of being is a dynamic philosophy which views reality in its ontological, causal and communicative structures. It is strong and enduring because it is based upon the very act of being itself, which allows a full and comprehensive openness to reality as a whole, surpassing every limit in order to reach the one who brings all things to fulfillment. In theology, which draws its principles from revelation as a new source of knowledge, this perspective is confirmed by the intimate relationship which exists between faith and metaphysical reasoning. These considerations apply equally to moral theology. It is no less urgent that philosophy be recovered at the point where the understanding of faith is linked to the moral life of believers. Faced with contemporary challenges in the social, economic, political and scientific fields, the ethical conscience of people is disoriented. In the encyclical letter Veritatis Splendor, I wrote that many of the problems of the contemporary world stem from a crisis of truth. I noted that, once the idea of a universal truth about the good, knowable by human reason, is lost, inevitably the notion of conscience also changes. Conscience is no longer considered in its prime reality as an act of a person's intelligence, the function of which is to apply the universal knowledge of the good in a specific situation, and thus to express a judgment about the right conduct to be chosen here and now. Instead, there is a tendency to grant the individual conscience the prerogative of independently determining the criteria of good and evil, and then acting accordingly. Such an outlook is quite congenial to an individualistic ethic, wherein each individual is faced with his own truth, different from the truth of others. Throughout the encyclical, I underscored clearly the fundamental role of truth in the moral field. In the case of the more pressing ethical problems, this truth demands of moral theology a careful inquiry rooted unambiguously in the Word of God. In order to fulfill its mission, moral theology must turn to a philosophical ethics which looks to the truth of the good, to an ethics which is neither subjectivist nor utilitarian. Such an ethics implies and presupposes a philosophical anthropology and a metaphysics of the good. Drawing on this organic vision, linked necessarily to Christian holiness and to the practice of the human and supernatural virtues, moral theology will be able to tackle the various problems in its competence, such as peace, social justice, the family, the defense of life and the natural environment, in a more appropriate and effective way. Theological work in the Church is first of all at the service of the proclamation of the faith and of catechesis. Proclamation, or kerygma, is a call to conversion, announcing the truth of Christ, which reaches its summit in his Paschal mystery. For only in Christ is it possible to know the fullness of the truth which saves. In this respect, it is easy to see why, in addition to theology, reference to catechesis is also important, since catechesis has philosophical implications which must be explored more deeply in the light of faith. The teaching imparted in catechesis helps to form the person. As a mode of linguistic communication, catechesis must present the Church's doctrine in its integrity, 
demonstrating its link with the life of the faithful. The result is a unique bond between teaching and living, which is otherwise unattainable, since what is communicated in catechesis is not a body of conceptual truths, but the mystery of the living God. Philosophical inquiry can help greatly to clarify the relationship between truth and life, between event and doctrinal truth, and above all between transcendent truth and humanly comprehensible language. This involves the reciprocity between the theological disciplines and the insights drawn from the various strands of philosophy. And such a reciprocity can prove genuinely fruitful for the communication and deeper understanding of the faith. Let us pray. Grant me, O Lord my God, a mind to know you, a heart to seek you, wisdom to find you, conduct pleasing to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and a hope of finally embracing you. Amen. Mary, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.